1: This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we hear the teaching of Matthew, judge not that you may not be judged, it's easy to overlook the obvious. When you teach the words of Elohim, you personally are not the judge, but you personally definitely function as divine judge. In Matthew, Jesus judges no one before the time, but teaches everyone the words of God's judgment. And now, the world judges him. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 27 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. this is Father Mark Bulos
0: and this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 413 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We've been talking online and offline about the tension between the shepherd's staff in the wilderness, his shebet, and the authority of the institutions and the infrastructure of civilization, the infrastructure built by the hand of man. The cities, the heritage, the infrastructure of the sons of Cain, which is the infrastructure of the children of Alexander, the Seleucids in the ancient world, which is the infrastructure of Greek civilization imposed on the Near East, which is what scripture is criticizing and attacking in its mashalic stance. That staff in the wilderness is the Lord's might manifest in the words he speaks in his language against that infrastructure in the wilderness. With his voice in his language, he calls to his sheep to lead them from going astray. But we know in Genesis that his sheep wandered outside of the garden. And once they wandered outside of the garden, they continued to wander from the place that they were consigned to wander into the cities built by the hand of man. And now the builders of cities and the lovers of institution want to put Elohim's representative, who holds his staff, his shepherd, who came to overthrow the city in the Gospel of Matthew, the builders of that city and the occupiers of that city who want to hold power in the city and over the city for their own glory, want to put the Lord's shepherd to death. And that's where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. The mocking and the ridicule and the shaming of the one whom the Lord sent to keep Israel In its place the one whom the Lord sent to call back the lost sheep of the house of Israel
0: since we began this book father remember we were always talking about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven and this is where we see the kingdom of heaven inaugurated the kingdom of heaven is a shepherd with his staff not a king on a throne in a city in a palace surrounded by thick brick walls And the inauguration of this kingdom in 27, we see exactly how it works. What's revealed immediately is the injustice and callousness of the rulers across the board, Jew and Gentile. The rulers of the temple as well as the rulers of the palace all are fine-taking, innocent, blood. All are fine spilling innocent blood for the sake of their own stability and comfort. All are fine with whatever means are necessary for them to remain in power and comfortable. Even when the wife calls this into question, Pilate pays no attention and just does what he's going to do. Even when Judas says, I've shed innocent blood, the priests say, not our problem. Even when there is clear warning that what you're doing is unjust and it is clear that whatever is going to happen next is going to be a result of your lack of justice, they have to go about doing what they're going to do. And when this is sprinkled with these prophetic moments, it's a reminder that it has always been like this. This is not new. Just because this is happening with Pilate doesn't mean this is new, because it was happening with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was acting, but he did his own thing. And he became unjust. This was happening with the Israelites all the way back. All the way back to Numbers it was happening in Joshua it was happening in Judges. It's been happening the entire time. When human beings try to be just They can't be because institution forces them to be unjust and to take the life of the innocent. They have to. So the inauguration of the kingdom here is with the shepherd in the wilderness with his staff. There is no city, no palace, no temple. It is the representative of Elohim in the midst of his flock, With his staff and that's it he does not protect himself the staff is there to protect the sheep and this is the inauguration of the kingdom that Matthew's been talking about since chapter 1
1: rich the tragedy of our country in this moment is the belief that our institutions are failing And that's why we're in crisis. Because that belief is predicated on the lie that there's such a thing as a healthy institution. And that is our problem. There's no such thing as a healthy institution. There can't be a healthy institution. Because an institution is the expression of the human ego it's not a flock it's a construction built by human hands a building is an expression of human ideology in stone an institution is an expression of human ideology in documentation and process but it's the same thing it's an expression of ideology Of ego born out of our individualism and our existentialism and our postmodernism, which means it's born out of me. Which means it's another kind of tyranny that is self interested, self motivated, and self oriented. Just like Marcus Aurelius's Pax Romana. Wonderful for him. Pretty crappy for the barbarians we have to understand that someone who works for the insurance company will never really care about your health that someone who works for the education industry will never really be free to truly care about your education they will always be hamstrung We have to understand that someone who cares about the institutions of religion can never truly preach the gospel. This is just a fact. There is an inherent conflict between the lust for institutional glory and the love of neighbor. But when you hear the voice of the shepherd holding his staff in the wilderness and you follow it and you ignore the glory of Rome or the glory of the synagogue and you don't worry about the impressive buildings in Mark chapter 13 or the impressive institutions, the buildings ultimately are just piles of stone. They're a metaphor for whatever it is that human beings build, physical or mental, it doesn't matter. When you can turn your back on the things that men build for glory, for convenience, for power, for might, whatever, and just follow the Lord's voice and obey his commandments, it will be well with you. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the Praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, the word Roman doesn't occur in the Greek, They added it in this translation because apparently they want to make sure that we know it wasn't a French cohort rich. Maybe they expect people don't know history. Whatever. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews." You pointed out earlier this year, Richard, that everyone keeps telling Jesus he's the king. He never says he's the king. I like the fact that he's being called out as the one who is set over the Judeans because it is the Judeans who are always being put down in scripture because that's how the teaching works. And. They're mocking him, which means that the people of Judea are being mocked, which is how scripture works. And he's no king when you put a crown of thorns on his head, but I love the fact that he's carrying a reed in his right hand, because the Lord of Israel, Elohim's representative, is still their shepherd <laughs> he's still over them even when he's losing because the point is they're losing elohim is not losing but the lord is losing he still holds the staff in his right hand and they're going down with him because they have turned their back on his voice
0: by turning away from the voice of the one who brings the word, they continue to act in the unjust way that they must in order to keep the institution going. They have to mock the one who undermines their institution. They don't have a choice. This is the way that institution runs. I talk to my kids sometimes and they'll say, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I'll say, maybe, but it always has been. The data suggests that it is always that way. What proves this point is that we all know that Jesus in this state is the opposite of human institutional power. Even 2,000 years later, we don't say, why did they put the crown of thorns on his head and give him that robe? Why would, he, why would they do that? We all understand perfectly. It's to make fun of him. Because it's the opposite of power. It's using the equivalent of power as a joke. We all know this. The cleverness of this is this is the inauguration of the kingdom. The inauguration of the kingdom doesn't need the trappings of power. It doesn't need gold trappings plated coffee tables like Donald Trump. It doesn't need designer dresses like Michelle Obama. Doesn't need any of that stuff. As a matter of fact, that stuff undermines its true authority. This shepherd needs nothing except the word. This is where Jesus's true freedom lies. He doesn't need a robe, he doesn't need a crown, he doesn't need a staff, he has a word. And because he has this word and because he was anointed as the one who would inaugurate the kingdom from the one who has dominion, who owns the flock over which Jesus will rule, it's all you need. And it again shows how flimsy human institution is, because you can just take its symbols and flip it, and it can mean something the opposite of what you thought. So, here Jesus shows he doesn't need any of this to be who Jesus is, which is the one who brings the word from his father to rule the flock of his father.
1: They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head like petulant children. That's what kids do when they're spoiled and disobedient. They take the staff of the pedagogos, and instead of allowing the teacher to be the pedagogue and guide their steps in the Roman household, instead of allowing the shepherd to use his staff to rescue them from going astray, that's why they're such a beautiful connection between the pedagogos and the shepherd or the economos and the shepherd, you see how these metaphors interact so beautifully, Richard. Instead of submitting and allowing their steps to be guided so they can walk according to the instruction, they take the staff and start beating the shepherd. It's a horrible but beautiful way to express how we behave when we turn our backs On God's instruction straightforward simple clear rejection of instruction and this I think is the hardest thing for adult disciples of Scripture to accept that they have to become like children when they walk in the doors of the church and hear the gospel because a child receives instruction from the parent. And people who are formed as adults don't want to submit to instruction. And as a priest, I experience this all the time. Everybody looks at me and says, okay, Father Mark's a teacher, but I can teach him too. I'm an adult too. I have an education too. I have experience too. They're not able to really accept functionality because we're caught up in this corporate system of feedback and I have a voice and I'm paying for this so I have a say, whatever it is psychologically at work in Western institutions whose reference are not scripture or the voice of the shepherd in the wilderness, we cannot function as children when the gospel is read. and it gets acted out always personally. Because you can't act out against a book. You can only act out against the people holding the book and reading it. That's why the Lord is not kidding in Matthew when he says, judge not that you may not be judged. The one who stands up to read the gospel will be judged. I understood this from the day, from the day. The bishop put the stole around my neck. I understood that you will be judged because you are reading the gospel. That is how it works. It's a tautology. (laughs) Read the gospel, be judged, because the gospel is judging. Even though you're not judging, you're reading the judgment, people will hate you. That's why the average preacher blows kisses from the pulpit to cover up and make excuses for what the gospel actually says. Because it's difficult, painful, and embarrassing, if you're in a popularity contest, to read what that book says clearly. There's a reason that they started to beat Jesus on the head, friends. And if you take it seriously, and if Jesus' death means anything, stop hiding the gospel under a blanket.
0: The rejection of Jesus because of what he will do to disrupt these institutions. That's exactly the problem, Father. If you're going to church to affirm that everything you're doing is fine and your life is fine and you're feeling fine and things are good and we're all fine, that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa! none of this is fine out here. None of it's fine. This is all a problem. If you go to church without that broken and contrite heart, you got nothing to learn, but Scripture is going to keep teaching you, and you're going to get annoyed. Of course you're going to get annoyed, because you don't want to learn anything, and here's a bunch of people trying to teach you, and then what do you say? Who are they to teach me? I'm fine. I got everything figured out. Everything's going fine for me. According to Scripture, it's not going fine. You know, we were talking earlier, Father, it's like, I'm sure things were going just fine in Jerusalem for a couple hundred years there, But we just don't hear very much about those couple hundred years. We tend to spend a ton of time reading Scripture about when things were going terribly, terribly wrong, when it was literally burning down, when people were exiled, when people were in misery. That's the part that Scripture chose to focus on in this story. Why do we have to have Ezekiel and Jeremiah? Well, here's everything that happened before Jerusalem was destroyed. And then we have Ezekiel. Here's everything that happened after Jerusalem was destroyed. Those are big books. And then like, so we don't forget, we got lamentations in between. Here's what happened as it was being destroyed. We have to have so much there talking about this destruction. This is the mockery of Jerusalem's so-called power and strength and kingdom, and might. But the true might of the kingdom comes when it's burnt down, when the people are scattered. Because this is when this kingdom can be inaugurated, where the shepherd needs nothing except the word of hope in the Father, who will be the one who is able to teach with his word and bring the scattered sheep together. So if you come into church without anything to learn, but just wanting to have your fire lit one more time so your heart can feel on fire for the gospel for one more week, we don't need this. You need to be broken and you need to learn how all this is a lie out here. Everything you read on social media is a lie. Everything you saw on the news is a lie. And we come back to church one more time to hear the gospel so we can hear truth of the kingdom and what the kingdom is. The
1: best metaphor for a faithful priest is the preaching of the story of Samson when he's standing under the pillars, bringing the temple down on his head. That is the only healthy institution the one the prophet brings down on his head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Once again, as we explained last week, the Lord is humiliated so that Israel could be held up as an example of sin, Paul's teaching in Romans, the Lord is humiliated so that Israel would not claim victory over other cities and other peoples the way that the Romans and the Greeks do, and then put their gods as victorious over other peoples. You can't make yourself a victor over the Romans and put a statue of Jesus in the place of their statue of Zeus or Apollo. Not after this scene. And that's exactly how Yahweh functions in the Old Testament. So there's a parallel here. It's beautiful. There's a reason we call Jesus Lord. And then you can extrapolate. Again, drawing on this discussion of Elohim and Yahweh in the Old Testament. And now Elohim and Jesus in the New Testament, but then the relationship between, for example, Jesus and the Roman patrician in the Gospels, Jesus, Paul, and the Roman patricians. Everybody is pushed downward. Just like the Greek gods are demoted. Everybody is pushed down so that no one can claim a victory and everybody is under the authority of the voice of Elohim. Everyone's under the Torah, under his law. And (laughs) Father Paul would love this, Richard.
0: That means everybody has to learn Hebrew. (laughs) They have to learn what this all means. Otherwise, they're going to force a meaning upon it that is what they want it to be. It just occurs to me, you know, if Pilate just wants Jesus dead, why not just stab him right here? Why are we going through this whole scene? Why do we have to go through this whole scene of the dressing him up and then undressing him and then smacking him around a little bit and spitting on him and then putting his clothes back on him and then marching him down the street and then cruising? What's up with this pageantry? But I think pageantry is the key word. It's not enough for the Romans to process to show how victorious they are. They need to process with the one whom they've humiliated and defeated to puff themselves up, to show them, to show the crowds that they are the victorious ones. They need to have a defeated one to show how victorious they are. Jesus does not need... The defeated one to show how victorious he is. Because his word is what shows who is victorious and who is defeated. Because as you said, Father, under the word, we're all defeated. None of us are victorious. When I had to summarize scripture for somebody one time while proverbially standing on one leg, I said, It's to show that we're all victims, but we're not allowed to think of ourselves as victims. We have to understand that we are the ones who are being crushed, but we're not allowed to feel sorry for ourselves. And Jesus is put through the ringer where he has to feel sorry for himself because of how much he's being tortured and mocked but he doesn't. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. On the contrary, he continues to teach those who have ears to hear and keeps his mouth silent before those who don't, because his only reference is the word that he teaches as the emissary of God's kingdom.
1: Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've
0: just heard the Bible
1: as literature. Thanks for listening.
0: The Bible as Literature is a production of the
1: Ephesus School Network.